Today is Wednesday, March the 29th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Gordon Moore, Intel co-founder, passed away at age 94. Moore, who set the course for the future of the semiconductor industry, devoted his later years to philanthropy. Intel and Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation announced that company co-founder Gordon Moore has passed away at the age of 94. The foundation reported he died peacefully on Friday, March the 24th, 2023, surrounded by family at his home in Hawaii. Moore and his longtime colleague, Robert Noyce, founded Intel in July of 1968. Though he never aspired to be a household name, Gordon's vision and his life's work enabled the phenomenal innovation and technological developments that shape our everyday lives. Prior to establishing Intel, Moore and Noyce participated in the founding of Fairchild Semiconductor, where they played central roles in the first commercial production of diffused silicon transistors and later the world's first commercially viable integrated circuits. The two had previously worked together under William Shockley, the co-inventor of the transistor and founder of Shockley Semiconductor, which was the first semiconductor companies established in what would become Silicon Valley. Upon striking out on their own, Moore and Noyce hired future Intel CEO Andy Grove as the third employee, and the three of them built Intel into one of the world's greatest companies. Together, they became known as the Intel Trinity. Gordon Moore defined the technology industry through his insight and vision. He was instrumental in revealing the power of transistors, in which he famously forecast in 1965 that the number of transistors on an integrated circuit would double every year a prediction that came to be known as Moore's Law. Moore said in a 2008 interview that all I was trying to do was get that message across, that by putting more and more stuff on a chip, we were going to make all electronics cheaper. With his 1965 prediction proven correct, in 1975, Moore revised his estimate to doubling of transistors on an integrated circuit every two years for the next 10 years, until the periodic table is exhausted. The idea of chip technology growing at an exponential rate, continually making electronics faster, smaller, and cheaper, became the driving force behind the semiconductor industry and paved the way for the ubiquitous use of chips in millions of everyday products. Yet those historic achievements are only part of his legacy. His and Betty's generosity as philanthropists will shape the world for generations to come. During his lifetime, Moore also dedicated his focus and energy to philanthropy, particularly environmental conservation, science, and patient care improvements. Along with his life for 72 years, 
He established the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, which has donated more than $5.1 billion to charitable causes since its founding in 2000. He received the National Medal of Technology from President George H.W. Bush in 1990 and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor from President George W. Bush in 2002. The Turing Award won by Bob Metcalf, co-inventor of Ethernet technology. The Turing Award, often referred to as the Nobel Prize in Computing, carries a $1 million prize with financial support provided by Google Inc. The award is named for Alan M. Turing, the British mathematician who articulated the mathematical foundations of computing. Bob Metcalf will be formally presented with the Turing Award at the annual ACM Awards Banquet, which will be held this year on Saturday, June the 10th, at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. In the 1970s, Bob Metcalf helped develop a primary technology that lets you send email or connect with a printer over an office network. In June of 1972, Bob Metcalf, then a 26-year-old engineer, fresh out of graduate school, joined a new research lab in Palo Alto, California, as it sets out to build something that few people could even imagine, a personal computer. After another engineer gave up the job, Dr. Metcalf was asked to build a technology that could connect the desktop machines across an office and send information between them. The result was Ethernet, a computer networking technology that would one day become an industry standard. For decades, it has connected PCs to servers, printers, and the internet in corporate offices and homes across the globe. In 1973, while a computer scientist at the Xerox Park or Palo Alto Research Center, Bob Metcalf circulated a now famous memo describing a broadcast communication network for connecting some of the first personal computers Parks Altos within a building. The first Ethernet ran at 2.94 megabits per second, which at that time was about 10,000 times faster than the terminal networks it would replace. Although Metcalf's original design proposed implementing this network over coaxial cable, the memo envisioned communications over an ether, making the design adaptable to future innovations in media technology including legacy telephone twisted pair, optical fiber, radio Wi-Fi, and even power networks to replace the coaxial cable as the ether. That memo laid the groundwork for what we now know today as Ethernet. Metcalf recruited David Boggs, a co-inventor of Ethernet, to help build a 100-node Park Ethernet. That first Ethernet was then replicated within Xerox to proliferate a corporate network. In their classic 1976 communications of the ACM article, Ethernet, distributed packet switching for local computer networks, Metcalf and Boggs described the design of Ethernet. Metcalf then led a team that developed the 10 megabits per second Ethernet to form the basis of subsequent standards. After leaving Xerox in 1979, Bob Metcalf remained the chief evangelist for Ethernet as the founder of his own Silicon Valley internet startup, 3Com Corporation. Today, Ethernet is the main conduit of wired network communications around the world, 
handling data rates from 10 megabits per second to 400 gigabits per second with 800 gigabits and 1.6 terabits per second technologies emerging. Ethernet has become an enormous market with revenue from Ethernet switches alone exceeding $30 billion in 2021, according to the International Data Corporation. Bob Metcalf insists on calling Wi-Fi by its original name, wireless Ethernet, for old time's sake. Ethernet has been the dominant way of connecting computers to other devices, to each other, and to the Internet. Metcalf's original design ideas have enabled the bandwidth of Ethernet to grow geometrically. It is rare to see a technology scale from its origin to today's mega gigabits per second capacity. Even with the advent of Wi-Fi, Ethernet remains a staple mode of data communication, especially when security and reliability are prioritized. Ethernet is the foundational technology of the Internet, which supports more than 5 billion users and enables much of modern life. Today, with an estimated 7 billion ports around the globe, Ethernet is so ubiquitous that we take it for granted. It's easy to forget that our interconnected world would not be the same if not for Bod Metcalf's invention and his enduring vision that every computer needed to be networked. Later off workers are calling out their former employers on social media and the death of non-disparagement clauses could make it the norm. If non-disparagement clauses are revoked, laid-off employees could start sharing more and more their experiences at work. Last month, the National Labor Relations Board ruled that employers can no longer include non-disparagement clauses in severance agreements with employees. Non-disparagement agreements barred laid-off or terminated employees from sharing negative thoughts or experiences about their former employers in exchange for a few months' salary. If federal courts uphold the NLRB's decision, it would effectively invalidate these clauses from severance agreements. While this may seem like a dry contractual legal change, it actually materially impacts the way we can communicate about our bosses, our financial compensation, and our actual work duties in the public eye. Non-disparagement clauses have long been a staple of severance contracts that employees sign when laid off or departing a company on less than friendly terms. The agreement has historically been live off of this money for a couple of months to move on, but you can't say anything critical about the company or its employees. After someone signed such an agreement, they were not technically allowed to publicize or share an opinion about say, a form of manager's behavior, or the terms of their layoff. If they did, and they were found out, the employer has legal recourse to claw back the severance payment. There has been a recent dearth of layoffs in the tech industry. People have been going online to air their feelings about severance packages in an attempt to form a community, feel less alone, and perhaps pressure multi-billion dollar corporations to be more generous in what they offer workers. It is not common for employees to sue someone for providing an anonymous or group submission to the media, but the prospect of financial ruin for speaking up can cause much anxiety. It's more of a psychological-driven decision fueled 
by the understandable fear of financial peril. With a new rule change, the floodgates could open for more news items, less anonymity, and more transparency. It could bring corporate culture more in line with the public's thirst for authenticity. And now, with the world potentially watching, it could change the way employers behave behind closed doors, too. The Federal Trade Commission, that's the FTC, proposed a rule that would prohibit employers from requiring workers to sign non-compete clauses that restrict them from working for competitors or starting new businesses that offer similar services for a period of time. The FTC's announcement slammed non-compete clauses as a widespread and often exploitive practice that suppresses wages, hampers innovation, and blocks entrepreneurs from starting new businesses. The agency estimated that once the new rule is implemented, it could allow wages to rise by nearly $300 billion per year and broaden career opportunities for roughly 30 million Americans. The freedom to change jobs is core to economic liberty and to a competitive, thriving economy. FTC Chair Lena M. Khan said in a statement, Non-competes blocked workers from freely switching jobs, depriving them of higher wages and better working conditions, and depriving businesses of a talent pool that they need to build and expand. By ending this practice, the FTC's proposed rule would promote greater dynamism, innovation, and healthy competition. Non-compete clauses have applied to a relatively large segment of the American workforce. A 2021 study published in the Journal of Law and Economics found that about 18% of workers are bound by non-competes, while 38% have been subject to at least one non-compete clause previously in their careers. The study found that only 10% of employees negotiate with employers over a non-compete agreement, which can present an opportunity to potentially secure more favorable employment terms. About non-competes and one-third of workers are presented with their non-compete only after having already accepted their job offer. Well, what would this rule do? The FTC issued a preliminary finding that non-competes constitute an unfair method of competition and violates Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act as the authority for this proposed rulemaking. Under the proposed rule, the FTC would make it illegal for an employer to enter into or attempt to enter into a non-compete with a worker, maintain a non-compete with a worker, or represent a worker under certain circumstances that they're subject to a non-compete. The proposed rule would cover independent contractors and anyone who does paid or unpaid work for an employer. Existing non-competes would be invalidated and employers would be required to rescind them and notify workers previously subject to such clauses that they're no longer in effect. The FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission, proposal could make streaming services more attractive. Are you tired of TV providers advertising one price but charging another thanks to hidden fees? You might not have to put up with that practice for much longer. The Federal Communications Commission has proposed a requirement that cable and satellite TV services clearly 
and prominently display the true cost of service both in their marketing and on subscriber bills. Companies couldn't mask programming costs as fees that only show up on your bills, hiding them behind vague or potentially misleading terms. The measure is intended to help would-be customers make truly informed choices about TV subscriptions, including comparisons with streaming services. The move could also help boost competition between providers and help cash-strapped families avoid unpleasant surprises. FCC Chair Jessica Rosenwasser claims, The proposal comes months after President Biden called on government agencies to fight junk fees and otherwise demand more transparent pricing for services and events. The FCC itself recently said it would require a broadband nutrition labels that display prices and typical performance. In that light, the TV price transparency effort is mainly an extension that could outline exactly how much you'll pay for a multi-service bill. The proposal doesn't come at a great time for conventional TV giants, as streaming TV viewerships in the United States, that's including live and on-demand, overtook cable for the first time last year, while internet-only services aren't always better deals than cable and satellite equivalents. The increased transparency could prevent traditional companies from artificially minimizing the differences. Pinduoduo, Duo, with hundreds of millions of users, accused of distributing Android malware. Google suspends Pinduoduo Play Store app, apps on Samsung, Huawei, and other stores likely unsafe. Android users with apps from Pinduoduo should strongly consider uninstalling them, especially if you got those apps from outside the Google Play Store. Recent reports indicate the company's apps contain malicious code that creates backdoors and downloads additional software without the user's consent. Google recently suspended e-commerce giant Pinduoduo's official Play Store app and warned users that several of the company's other apps contain malware. Pinduoduo's main Google Play Store app and the Apple App Store, for that matter, is likely harmless. But Google said versions from other distribution channels are dangerous. Third-party reports say Pinduoduo apps try to install widgets on affected devices, prevent users from uninstalling apps, track installed app usage stats, access Wi-Fi information, and pull location data. From now on, attempting to install these apps will trigger Google Play Protect, Google's anti-malware suite for Android. Security researchers report that Pinduoduo exploited Android vulnerability CVE 2023-2963, which Google patched earlier this month. The malware might be an effort to inflate the company's user numbers artificially. Google detected the malware on the Samsung, Huawei, Oppo, and Zozami app stores, although users in Western countries can rely on protection from Google's review process. The Play Store isn't available in Pinduoduo's native China. The company vehemently denied accusations from Google, and security researchers pointing out other apps suspended from Google Play around the same time. Because Pinduoduo is a Chinese company with around 800 million users, it's easy to see its suspension by American giant Google 
as anti-China fear-mongering, especially in light of Congress's threat to ban TikTok. However, the earliest reports accusing Penduldu of spreading malware came from Chinese security researchers. A later analysis from cybersecurity company Lookout appears to validate the initial findings. Earlier this month, Google's security team warned users about 18 zero-day exploits in popular Android devices, including the company's Pixel 6 and 7 phones. Google is working to harden its platform by baking security into the Android firmware. This security situation is one of the problems possibly arising from Android's severe level of fragmentation, which could be causing plenty of other issues for software developers and hardware manufacturers supporting the platform. The glory days of work from home are behind us. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the percentage of workplaces with little to no telework rose to 72.5% from 2021 to 2022. Well, it was a great run. Gone are the days of waking up two minutes before your first meeting and checking your inbox in your pajamas, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who posit that the pandemic-era work-from-home boom is finally fizzing out. According to a report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics published last week, 72.5% of private sector workplaces had little or no telework. In August and September of last year, a figure that is up to 12.5% from July to September 2021. Likewise, the percentage of workplaces with a portion of employees working from home has fallen from 29.8% in 2021 to 16.4% in 2022. That means one in six only. The work from home bubble has not completely burst, however, as 11.1% of employers had all of their employees working from home in 2022, which is slightly up from 10.3% in 2021. Work from home is here to stay, but the numbers are not going to be as high as people thought it would be. Around the world with over 30,000 radio stations. It was brought to my attention that one can now listen to over 30,000 radio stations around the world. The website is www.radio.garden. The service requires an internet connection to function. Supported conversion formats for streaming are MP3, OGG, and AAC. Radio Garden is a non-profit Dutch radio and digital research project developed from 2013 to 2016 by the Netherlands Institute for Sound and Vision by the Transnational Radio Knowledge Platform and five other European universities. According to the service, the idea is to narrow the boundaries from the radio. The site interface is a three-dimensional geolocation where the user navigates through a representation of the globe, listening to broadcasts of local radio stations, referring in some way to the technology of shortwave radios, long distances, but in this case, the means of propagation of the radio edition is by data packets. The homepage allows a user to explore the world in real time, listening to what the local radios are broadcasting. To do this, it's just simply rotate the globe. 
It also provides information on the country where the signal is being transmitted. Within Radio Garden, radios are arranged and grouped by cities, according to specialized websites. The design is formed by greenish spheres superimposed on the map, which increases in size as the region's number of broadcasters available. This idea was developed by the companies Studio Pocky and Studio Monica in partnership with the Netherlands Institute for Sound and Vision. There are also white spheres superimposed on the map, which is a cluster of stations transmitting from the same location. The site adopted the generic dot garden, top-level domain, which was originally intended for gardening professionals and, as noted, on specialized websites. Radio Garden has become a popular platform for exploring live radio broadcasts from around the world and has been used as a tool for cultural exchange and understanding. It is a unique way to connect with different regions and cultures through the medium of live radio. As of February 2021, Radio Garden has grown its collection of live radio stations from 7,000 to more than 30,000 according to an article published in The Guardian. It is possible that this number may have increased further since then due to ongoing station submissions. Therefore, it is safe to say there are thousands of live radio stations available on Radio Garden. Radio Garden is a free, ad-supported app available on the iOS App Store and Google Play. However, there is an in-app purchase for $2.99 to remove advertising. Additionally, you can also get Radio Garden on a Windows machine through the browser. Additionally, the website for Radio Garden is accessible for free and does not require any payment. Radio Garden can be accessed through its website at www.radio.garden or through its mobile app available on the iOS App Store and Google Play Store. Additionally, it can be accessed through various radio streaming platforms such as online radio box that allow software developers to integrate Radio Garden's content into their platform. Radio Garden's business model appears to be primarily relying on advertising revenue generated through their free app and website. In addition, the company may explore partnerships or collaborations with other radio streaming platforms or organizations to expand their reach and promote cultural exchange. However, it is important to note that Radio Garden is a non-profit organization, so generating revenue may not be their primary focus. It is unclear why there may be a lack of radio stations from the People's Republic of China, that's PRC, on Radio Garden. It could be due to a variety of factors such as difficulty in obtaining licensing or permission from the Chinese government, or simply a lack of submissions from the Chinese broadcasters. It is also possible that Radio Garden may face restrictions or censorship on content in certain regions. Nonetheless, Radio Garden offers a diverse collection of radio stations from various regions and cultures around the world, providing a unique listening experience for users. As a radio enthusiast, it was fun and challenging navigating and listening to radio stations around the world. Radio listening is alive and well. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell.
This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about, yes, IT, the workplace, you, all of that, and how they all intertwine. One of the things that has hit the business world recently is two-factor authentication. In some companies, it's been around for a long time. I was the sole point of contact nationwide for a major corporation back over 20 years ago, and I was the sole point of contact regarding two-factor authentication. We used these little RSA tokens. Today, more and more companies are picking up the RSA or the YubiKey or a number of these different options. And why why do we do that? So imagine you wake up one day and you find out all of your personal information has been compromised. And this can be the business, this can be personal, whatever. Your bank account has been locked because someone's changed the password. You receive an email from your email provider informing you that your account has been accessed from a suspicious location. Your email, social media, all of these things have been hacked and all of your information is now in the hands of cyber criminals. And I'm applying this to you, the individual, but this equally works in the business office. This nightmare scenario is a reality for a lot of people who've fallen victim to these data breaches and two-factor authentication is one of the best solutions out there. Two-factor authentication involves having a little passcode. It's not a it's not your password. It's a, a little bit that you know combined with something else. Something that you have or something that you are, like your password, or uh, not password, your, your fingerprint, rather. So like a little fingerprint reader combined with a little bit of information you know, that's two-factor authentication. So you see how that works? Or you've got this little, uh, this little token item, and it reads out a number, or it's got a rotating passcode that happens, and you apply that with your little bit of knowledge, and it just works, and it's great. Some of the benefits of two-factor authentication, one of the biggest ones, is it's, it shuts down password guessing. Hackers, they love to gain access to accounts by guessing a user's password or brute forcing that password. Two-factor authentication adds that additional layer. It requires that second form of communication. Again, that fingerprint, that that little uh, that little random code. One of the other areas for two-factor authentication, they send that code to your phone, and that combined with your password lets you in. Also, phishing scams get shut down really quick because. So with a fish, they try to find out your password. They try to find out little bits and pieces of recovery information for your account. So they may even get your password. They may have all kinds of information on hand, but they're shut down because when they go to log into your bank account, all of a sudden it's sending out that little text message to your phone, your phone, not theirs, sending out a little text message, and they can't answer that. Now, there is a little thing there. People do try to fish you. They say, they'll call you up. They'll say, hey, I'm calling from 
Bank of the United States. I'm using a random name. Bank of the United States. I won't name the other guys. Uh, and uh, you know what? We we need to verify that you are you. So I'm going to send a little code to you on your cell phone. You need to read that to me before we continue our conversation. Don't do it. The bank will never ask for those codes. No bank will ever ask for those codes. Not Bank of the United States, not the Bells, Wargo, um, whatever it is. <laughs> I should call them out. I should just use the regular names. I don't know why I did it today, but there you go. Um, also, data breaches are becoming they're more, becoming more common. They can be catastrophic for, for everybody. So by using this two-factor authentication, you're reducing data breaches. Also, remote workers. And, and this, is, this is on both sides of the equation, both for the company, but also for yourself. If you're a remote worker, it's going to protect you because it's going to make sure that only you are logging into your account, not somebody else. Nobody's going to hack your account, and that's good. We ensure through two-factor authentication that only the employees in the company are accessing all of these key bits and pieces of information. This secures also the on-site workers. So if you're in the office, you walk away from your desk, you don't have somebody who managed to look over your shoulder and see, hey, John was typing in his password, and I know what it is. So I'll get on there, and I'll I'll take care of uh, whatever it is I got to take care of. And then he messes it up, and it all goes downhill from there. Look, two-factor authentication. Whenever you have the chance to enable it, do it. Whenever you have the chance to use it, do it. I, I know it feels like we're experiencing setbacks. It feels like it's going to slow you down by a couple of seconds, maybe even 30 seconds. But the return on investment, the just the value, that peace of mind, knowing that the bad guys aren't going to get into your account is insurmountable. It, it's just amazing. I will tell you, I've utilized two-factor authentication for a very long time, and I turned it on regularly with all of these different accounts and options and whatnot, and it just makes my life a lot more secure. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. World Backup Day coming up on March the 31st was started by a group of concerned internet users and tech enthusiasts in 2011. They were inspired to create World Backup Day after reflecting on the fact that many people were not backing up their data regularly, and as a result, were putting themselves and their organizations at risk. The first World Backup Day was observed on March the 31st, 2011, and since then, it has become an annual event that encourages people to take action to protect their digital estate. Failing to back up your data can have catastrophic consequences as a single hardware failure, cyber attack, or natural disaster can wipe out all your valuable information, leaving you with no way to recover it. This means that years of hard work can all be lost in an instant with no chance of retrieval. Even the cost of losing just a portion of your important data can be immeasurable, with potential financial, legal, and reputational implications 
that can last for years. Identifying the vital data that requires protection should be the first step in the process. Don't let the nightmare of data loss become your reality. Always back up your data. Data loss can occur due to a number of reasons such as hardware failure, software corruption, malware attacks, natural disasters, and even human error. The cost due to data loss can vary depending on the various type of data loss. Studies suggest that the cost of data loss can be significant, with some estimates. One can imagine the devastating consequences if an organization like a hospital, emergency responders, or military agency lost access to critical data. On World Backup Day and all year long, it is critical to remember that investing in data protection is not just smart, it's essential. What would you lose if you lost everything? Photos, documents, all irreplaceable. It can all go away in just a flash from a hack or a fire or a crash. Well, you think it won't happen to you until it does. And then there's nothing you can do. You gotta back it up every day. And you gotta do it right. With the knowledge. Three, two, one, three copies into formats. With one copy off-site. With Synology. You can use Synology to back it all up. Network attached storage anybody can love. Your own private cloud to sync and share. Or back it all up. It's so easy, I swear. Send it to the cloud with Microsoft Azure, Amazon Cloud Drive, Dropbox, and more. Back it up daily. Back it up weekly. Back it up whenever. Take a backup pledge. And your data will be so safe forever. Back it up every day. And you gotta do it right. A federal judge has ruled in favor of publishers in a lawsuit over the Internet Archive's online library. The four publishing houses, Hatchet Book Group, HarperCollins, John Wiley & Sons, and Penguin Random House, accused the Internet Archive of mass copyright infringement for loaning out digital copies of books without the publisher's permission. At issue is the National Emergency Library, a temporary online collection established in 2020 that lent digital books while brick-and-mortar libraries were closed during COVID-19's lockdowns. It operated from March 24 to June 16th of that year. While its other online collections... The Internet Archive had been lending out one digital copy of a book to one reader at a time, but the nonprofit suspended that policy for the National Emergency Library, allowing many readers to borrow the same book at once. The Internet Archive, which strives to provide universal access to all knowledge, said its emergency online library was legal under the doctrine of fair use. But last Friday, the U.S. District Judge John Coltel of the Southern District of New York sided with the publishers, saying established law was on their side. The fair use defense 
rests on the notion that lawfully acquiring a copyrighted print book entitles the recipient to make an unauthorized copy and distribute it in place of the print book, so long as it does not simultaneously lend the print book, the judge said in his opinion. But no case or legal principle supports that notion. Every authority points the other direction. The judge noted that the Internet Archive can still scan and publish copies of books that are in public domain. The Authors Guild, a professional organization for published writers, praised the ruling saying that the scanning and lending books without permission or compensation is not fair use. It is theft and it devalues authors' works. The Association of American Publishers said the ruling reaffirmed the importance of copyright law. The Internet Archive said it will appeal the ruling. In a statement, the Internet Archive founder suggested the judge's opinion would harm libraries, readers, and authors. Libraries are more than customer service departments for corporate database products. For democracy to thrive at global scale, libraries must be able to sustain the historic role in society owning, preserving, and lending books. Artificial Intelligence versus the Sport of Go In December, as Artificial Intelligence Chatbot, Chatbot GPT, awed the world with its human-like responses to questions, a major cheating scandal involving artificial intelligence was erupting in Asia. The Chunlan Cup, an international tournament boasting $200,000 in prize money for winning the ancient Chinese board game of Go, was embroiled in controversy following a semi-final match. In a David versus Goliath moment, a relative newcomer, Li Huanhua of China, defeated the reigning world champion Shin Jin Shou of South Korea. On social media, Li's own teammate accused him of cheating using artificial intelligence, which is commonly used during training but banned during competition. The controversy drew coverage from major newspapers, including Chinese state media. Players called for new measures to prevent artificial intelligence-assisted cheating, saying it was an existential threat to the sport, though the Chinese Go Association declared after weeks of investigation that it found no evidence of cheating. The scandal raised questions about the future of the 2,500-year-old sport and offered a glimpse into the kind of disruption that technology like ChatGPT may bring into a world of previously dominated by humans. AI destroyed all the existing orders of this community and rebuilt it, said an avid Go player who researches AI at Cornell University. Human experts used to dominate the whole realm. Now we have to accept a non-human actor who has expertise maybe even has exceeded the human experts. So how are we going to deal with it? The scandal swirling over the Chunlan Cup wasn't the first time AI disrupted the game of Go. For thousands of years, it was considered the height of intellectual pursuit in East Asia. Even today, there are 40 million players in China studying in 200,000 schools, according to the Chinese Go Association. Unlike chess, which was dominated by computer programs starting in the 1990s, Go was considered too complex to be mechanized due to the near-infinite number of possible moves on its 19 by 19 grid. Go Masters, 
Once household names in Asia were held in reverence like gods. They appeared to stand on mountains, and all knowledge of the game flowed from them. They were so famous they would publish books that advised players about life. But Google's superhuman AI arrived in 2016. The 18-time world champion Lee Seo-do of South Korea was soundly defeated by AlphaGo in a widely publicized match. Lee announced his retirement three years later, citing the match as the reason. Humans had been playing Go for thousands of years, improving it, but AI within a year showed that they are better, that our level of Go was really beginner, says one who teaches at the Hong Kong Children's Go College. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, you know, I haven't really talked with you in regards to electric vehicles, the self-driving cars, whether we talk Tesla or Ionic or any of these different guys. Uh, I don't think we've ever talked about it, but I wanted to get your read on this. My concern, in case you you weren't aware, I don't like the idea of we have a you know 400 mile range if we're lucky, and then we have to sit for eight hours to charge it. Uh, I know we're getting better with the charging in 80% in half an hour or whatever. You know, I, I struggle with the whole idea of this. Uh, well, where where there, do you there would be a, There would be an easy solution for that. Yes. Have your electric car carry a gas generator. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we've seen a few people do that. Actually, you know, some of the, um, some, yeah. some of the hybrids, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my son has a Honda hybrid. He gets great mileage. He's, he's back and forth from D.C. in a tank. Yeah. So what? You yeah. Know? <laughs> I want to point something out about supply and demand mm-hmm. and uh, electric vehicles specifically. I love the concept. Mm-hmm. I like the concept of not using gas, not burning gas, not creating those exhausts. But we're not seeing electric cars that don't consume the dwindling lithium supply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where is there lithium in the world? A couple of places in Africa and some places in China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are the key deposits. And both of those. And uh, Finland, Nor- Norway, whatever, somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in Scandinavia. Yeah. One of the biggest deposits, it's untapped, is uh, in the middle of Mexican drug lord territory. And nobody wants them to know it. Okay, there we go. I had no idea. All right, yes, okay. go on. So, look, what you're dealing with is, I'm holding my thumb up. Can yeah. everybody see it? Yes. <laughs> We're dealing with batteries that are roughly the size of my thumb, maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're cylinders. They're put in a box. They're connected together. And that's Hundreds how, of them, yeah. Yeah, thousands of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the power bank in an electric vehicle. One battery goes, eh, you can work your way around it. 20 batteries go, eh, you might not get everything you wanted. Um, but the idea that the dependency on lithium batteries is at the heart of electric vehicles and that we have no alternative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, yeah. It's an invitation to extortion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's an invitation to piracy. 
Mm-hmm. It's an invitation for enemies to see it as a vulnerability and attack it. Mm-hmm. So electric cars for me are eco-politics. And I almost never talk about either one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's a case of, is it so glitzy a thing that you need it? And by the way, we should mention those self-driving cars are not the perfect drivers they're made out to be. No, they're not. And 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 we keep hearing the recurring different items. And uh, uh, there was a, a lawsuit that started uh, a little while back. I, I don't recall the, the outcome of it. A guy got involved with a car accident and they said he wasn't paying enough attention in the self-driving car. Yeah. Yeah. And there are self-driving cars that have been driverless that have hit things. Yeah. 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 And isn't it going to be more fun with self-driving semis, tractor trailers on the highway? That one, that one is an area which, which really scares me, but it's, it, that's actually, that's a, a whole different crazy area I, I i i read an interesting article a matter of all of these truck drivers the range that they want out of their out of their trucks they want to be able you know they can't they can't afford to stop for four hours at a truck no. stop they're looking to to stick the nozzle in start filling the gas run inside take a shower and get back in the truck and drive and and even there, there's two drivers in the truck, one sleeping while the other's yes, driving. Yes, frequently. That's a, yeah. Yeah. So, so. Uh, it, it's uh, that may be something that needs to change. We don't know, but the the pause is something that needs to be overcome, surmounted. Mm-hmm. And uh, without some way to do that, I can't see a, a tractor trailer with a wind turbine on the top. I think. <laughs> 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 uh that that sounds kind of scary yeah <laughs> need a little need a little bit more um uh, clearance above the roof yeah yeah then you can't mount it on the ground upside down wouldn't know that doesn't nope, work either. nope nope big eight beater big beater in the front don't be the <laughs> don't be the pedestrian you know <laughs> oh so there there are issues can't pretend that there aren't and how glamorous is it really well it's a little Self-driving, we don't need. If you really need somebody else to drive for you, we have an old invention called the chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> Which at this rate, hour for hour, probably cheaper yes. than uh, than the additional that you would pay for the self-driving car. Yeah. Yeah, and take all of those legal immigrants that Texas keeps shuttling to other states and let's get them to work. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of craziness. Ah, well, as for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The TechEd Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, had originally scheduled meeting for Thursday, April the 6th, 2023, and the meeting for April has been canceled. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, 
Friday has a meeting April the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting on Thursday, April the 13th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, April the 14th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club has a meeting on Tuesday, April the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, you can call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again. Same time, same station next week.